0: Hello, We the People. This is Carmela Siliberti. Thank you for joining me. In the last episode, we began our exploration of Article V, Convention of the States. We learned that the U.S. Constitution can be amended by two methods. First, proposal through two-thirds of both houses in Congress, or by proposal of 34 states in a convention. Regardless of the proposal method, it must be followed by ratification of 38 states. Amendments through Congress is a familiar process. Throughout our nation's history, 33 amendments have been proposed, with 27 ratified by the states. However, proposed amendments through a convention of states has never occurred in our nation's history, save for the amending or rewrite of the Articles of Confederation, which of course gave us the U.S. Constitution. There are questions surrounding how a convention of states would be called, who would act as delegates, and how they would conduct themselves once assembled. Regardless, whatever proposals come forth from such a convention, the proposed amendments would need to be ratified again by 38 states. One argument against a convention of states is that it could result in a runaway convention. As this happened the last time we had a convention of the states, don't you know? We explored the history surrounding the calling of a Constitutional Convention and found that 12 of the 13 state legislatures, state delegates to the proposed convention, and state delegates to the Congress of the Confederation were unanimous in their desire to drastically amend the Articles of Confederation. Even though Rhode Island did not send delegates to the Constitutional Convention, a portion of their state legislature and delegates to the Congress of the Confederation were in support of it. We will now pick up where our last episode ended, learning how the Convention bridged the gap from the Articles of Confederation requiring unanimous ratification by the states to the new three-fourths requirement for ratification of the U.S. Constitution. The debates surrounding this issue are documented and can be read in their entirety. But to save us the exercise of going through the back and forth, I will refer to Michael Ferris's Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy article. He does a good job of summarizing what was stated in those arguments. He says, what is clear both from this language and from the ensuing debates is that there were two competing ideas concerning ratification of the constitution the first theory, driven by traditional, institutional, and legal concerns, was that Congress and all 13 state legislatures should be the agencies that consent on behalf of the people. Alternatively, others contended that the people themselves should consent to the Constitution. He goes on, Hamilton argued that the plan for nine states to approve the new Constitution was would in fact be appropriate if the new plan for ratification was first approved by the Congress and then by the 13 state legislatures. Hamilton's proposal would thread the needle, achieving both of the competing interests—the desire to follow the recognized procedures to achieve legal validity— approval of the new process by both Congress and the state legislatures, as well as the desire to ground the Constitution in the moral authority that flows from the approval of the people. This method ended up being approved unanimously by the members of the Constitutional Convention. A package was put together for the Continental Congress's review and submission to the states, the resolution sent to the Continental Congress on September 17, 1787, reads in pertinent part, that the preceding constitution be laid before the United States in Congress assembled, and that it is the opinion of this convention that should it afterwards be submitted to a convention of delegates, chosen in each state by the people thereof, under the recommendation of its legislature, for their assent and ratification— and that each convention assenting to and ratifying the same should give notice thereto to the United States and Congress assembled. Resolved that it is the opinion of this convention that as soon as the conventions of nine states shall have ratified this constitution, the United States and Congress assembled should fix a day on which electors should be appointed by the states which shall have ratified the same, and a day on which the electors should assemble to vote for the president." The Continental Congress, having received this resolution, as well as a letter from the president of the Constitutional Convention and a copy of the U.S. Constitution, quickly turned around and approved its submission to all the states. In their resolution of Congress, dated September 28, 1787... All 12 states, resolved, Congress having received the report of the convention lately assembled in Philadelphia, resolved unanimously that the said report, with the resolutions and letter accompanying the same, be transmitted to the several legislatures in order to be submitted to a convention of the delegates chosen in each state by the people thereof in conformity to the resolves of the convention made and provided in that case if we view this in contractual terms, the Continental Congress made an offer to the various states to participate in this constitutional convention. Article 7 of the proposed constitution made very clear what the terms would be. The ratification of the conventions of nine states shall be sufficient for the establishment of this constitution between the states so ratifying the same. So what was the response of the 13 states upon receiving this letter, this offer, to engage in a way of changing the Articles of Confederation that they were currently operating under? Is there any evidence in the historical record that any of the 13 states said, no, thank you, we're not going to do this, we want the Articles of Confederation, just as they are? We're going to use those only. We want to modify them. We don't want to participate in this new method. No, actually, quite to the contrary. All the states agree to amending the Articles of Confederation. And they didn't do this expressly by sending a letter like, yeah, this is great. We're going to move forward with this. No, instead, they move forward with calling a convention. Each of the 13 states accepted the terms of the offer through performance acceptance by performance is something you're familiar with and do in your daily life whether you realize it or not it's a legal theory found in contracts acceptance of an offer is manifestation of assent to the terms thereof made by the offeree and in a manner invited or required by the offer acceptance by performance requires that at least part of what the offer requests be performed or tendered and includes acceptance by a performance which operates as a return promise an acceptance is a voluntary act of the offeree, whereby he exercises the power conferred on him by the offerer, and thereby creates the set of legal relations called a contract. So this notification was sent out of the Continental Congress on September 28, 1787. The very next day, Pennsylvania called their convention. So yeah, take that, Delaware. You you really weren't first, Pennsylvania was, but I digress. In October, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Georgia, New Jersey, and Virginia called their conventions. Delaware called their convention in November, Maryland, North Carolina, New Hampshire, they all called in December, South Carolina in January, New York in February, and finally Rhode Island in March. At that time, six states had ratified the Constitution while it failed ratification in one state. Delaware was, in fact, first to ratify the Constitution on December seventh, 1787. Once the ninth state joined in ratifying the Constitution, the Continental Congress began to establish the procedures as directed in the resolution, setting time of the election of president, the delegates, etc. As Michael Ferris summarizes in his article, the ratification may have failed in some states, but in each state the legislature sanctioned the use of the new methodology designed to obtain the consent of the people. Not one state refused to participate in the new process on the premise that the methodology set forth in Article 13 of the Articles of Confederation should be employed. It is beyond legitimate debate that Congress approved and state legislatures voted to implement the process outlined in Article 7 of the Constitution and the Ratification and Transition Resolution. All 13 state legislatures approved the implementation of the new process by March 1st, 1788, at the time when Rhode Island called its convention. So what do you think? Do you think this constitutional convention ran away in any fashion? Is there any point in the process that we've reviewed that indicates that one of the 13 or any number of the 13 states were not participating in the process of a great rewrite of the Articles of Confederation? I can't find it. And if you can, and you have the evidence to support your argument, please message me. I would love to read it. So let's return to present-day politics What about a convention of states today? And notice that distinction, a convention of states, not a constitutional convention. There is a false equivalence being drawn between what is being proposed today through Article 5 of the Constitution versus what occurred back in 1787 as the Constitutional Convention. Those are two very different things. So we can look back at history and, and get some bearings as to how things were conducted and how we might conduct ourselves in the future. But to say that an Article V Convention of the States is the same as a constitutional convention, which is a claim being made by some, is disingenuous. That being said, should we still be concerned that a Convention of the States under Article V can in some way run away? Can it somehow completely dissolve our Constitution? Or parts of it, could it do away or modify the First or Second Amendment? In short, the answer is no. A convention of states, in accordance with Article 5, would operate within the confines of the U.S. Constitution and be subject to litigation before the Supreme Court of the United States. Further, if it was so easy to radically replace or change our current Constitution, why haven't they done it already? And it could be done in a much easier fashion than the convention of the states. Think about it. Congress, right now, can propose any amendment they want, but it has to pass two-thirds of both houses. Let's do the math, shall we? Two-thirds of 435 representatives versus trying to get proposals through 34 state legislatures, amounting to more than 5,000 representatives, plus or minus, figure about 150 reps per state, just to get a proposal. Then they still have to have it ratified, which takes... As we know, 38 states and their legislative bodies. Here's another argument. The Convention of States is its own sovereign body. Once it's enacted, it can do whatever it wants. Uh, not quite. That's not at all what the Constitution or Article 5 says. What they're proposing is actually a revolution. Are we really to believe that those are set on a revolution, are going to go through the Article 5 Convention of the States process to get it done? I don't think so. Here's another argument. If an Article V Convention of the States is called, Congress will take over the convention. They'll set the rules. They'll dictate everything. They can't. Congress has their own method of proposing changes to the Constitution through Article V. A Convention of the States is a process owned by the states. Well, that's all fine and good, you might say, but our legislatures are not made up of the same caliber of representatives as in the past— Really? Did you listen to what happened to Mr. Manning? Look, I'll grant our culture's not what it used to be, but they were rascals then, and we have rascals now. So, that in and of itself is not a sufficient argument. Well, if 34 states come together to draft proposals, it'll be way easier to get four more to agree to ratify those proposals. This is the same risk that is present with proposals coming through Congress. And again, If they had the votes, they would have made drastic changes to the U.S. Constitution already. And they don't have the votes. That's why they haven't done it. So why should we be scared of a process that has no more risk involved than what we currently experience? In fact, I would say it has less risk. Why? Because 34 states have to agree to come together to begin with. And lastly, you might say the Constitution isn't broken and it doesn't need to be amended. Okay, finally, a sound argument. This is where the debate should occur. Do we actually want to amend the thing? You know, the thing. Sorry, couldn't help myself. Let's take term limits as an example. Arguments could be made on both sides. One could say that term limits would cause a loss of experience or that our culture is such that the electorate would just replace one boob with another boob. Either way, wherever you stand on the issue, it's important to have the debate. And again, that's what the Convention of States does. It allows for a debate. It doesn't immediately lead to ratification to any amendment. It's simply a proposal. We should also be on guard for the use of Article 5 as an alibi for not solving major political problems through the ordinary political process or as a means to distract the electorate from more pressing issues. So if I was your state rep, how would I vote on a Convention of States? Well, it depends on the text of the resolution. I see no greater risk posed by a Convention of States than what is already occurring in our national government. A Convention of States is simply one more tool in our toolbox given to us by our founders To reel in our national government. Now let's say that proposed amendments to the Constitution, sourced through either Congress or a convention of states, came before me for ratification as your state legislator. Again, it would depend on the text of the amendment. Any proposal would have to be closely evaluated for unintended consequences. I find term limits particularly appealing, though, because it doesn't address a human behavioral issue. Our founders were well acquainted with the human condition, and if they wanted to keep individuals from serving in government for a particular period of time, they could have easily stated such in our founding documents. However, one thing that has changed that they may not have anticipated is life expectancy. By and large, the founders didn't have to worry about someone being in government for 40 years, because they would have died. For centuries, the life expectancy hovered around 38 years. Not until the 1950s did that begin to shift, and that shift accelerated in the 1970s. Setting aside the President, Supreme Court, and military, I think it would be interesting to see a 20-year limit on all federal public servants and representatives. That said, does that necessitate an amendment to our Constitution? Again, as we discussed just a minute ago, there's arguments on both sides that are valid. I personally do not feel compelled to go out and lobby to get a convention of the states done, neither do I feel compelled to stop a convention of states from occurring. What I am passionate about is not allowing this issue to divide the conservative movement. It is a nothing burger. There are no additional risks with the calling of a convention of states. So why beat each other up over it? In July of last year, a resolution was put forth in the General Assembly of Pennsylvania. This resolution would have petitioned Congress of the United States to call for a convention proposing amendments pursuant to Article 5. This bill, SR 152, was really well written, and I would encourage you to read it. It answers many of the questions that we have regarding process and what it would look like if Pennsylvania participated. Recently, Steve Davies, Pennsylvania's Convention of State Leadership team, provided an update regarding SR-152. He says, after multiple rounds of contacts by many of you to your senator, on July 8th, SR-152 was marked on the Senate calendar for a vote. We believed we had or would be able to secure enough vote commitments to have the resolution pass on that date. However, at the last minute, a number of senators indicated they could not support the resolution and it was not put up for a vote. Here are the senators we know were not going to vote for the resolution. Senators Yaw, Gordner, Brooks, Vogel, Robinson, and Bartolotta. There were no doubt more, but we have been able to confirm these six. In his summary, Davies goes on to explain why he believes the resolution failed in the Pennsylvania Senate. I share it with you because it provides a good summary of what we've been discussing here and the concerns, whether founded or not, that are being floated among our representatives. Davies states that for most of them, their opposition to the resolution is primarily a result of pressure by members of a PA Second Amendment advocacy group to prevent the passage of any Article V Convention resolution, irrespective of the content. This goes back to what we were just discussing. Should Article V Convention of States be a divisive issue among conservatives? I'll continue with Davies. Davies. This fear of an Article V convention is based largely on a belief that the delegates to the 1787 Philadelphia Convention, which resulted in the U.S. Constitution, did not have the authority to propose a new constitution. These Article V opponents believe that the convention was called solely to amend the Articles of Confederation and that the delegates ignored this convention scope restriction. Consequently, they argue, it would be possible for the delegates to an Article V convention to do the same thing and thereby eliminate or severely weaken the Second Amendment. Legislators are told by these opponents that any vote for an Article V resolution will be considered an anti Second Amendment vote. One can sympathize with this view. We all hold the Second Amendment to be sacred and it should not be modified. But again, let's look at the facts. Is that what could happen here with a Convention of States? Or, put another way, does the Convention of States put us at any greater risk for this happening? We'll continue with Davies. He goes on, many legislators greatly fear a negative vote rating from Second Amendment supporters will cause them to lose their seat at re-election, so they take an opposition position when forced to make a vote decision. The opposition argument described above has, one, no basis in historical fact, two, convention operation precedent going back to the colonial era, three, the original intent of the framers when Article V was drafted, four, or in case law developed since the Constitution was ratified. Does this sound familiar? It sounds like the same conclusion we came to throughout our exploration. Davies goes on to opine why this is the case. He says, So many of our legislators who have taken oaths to protect, obey, and defend the entirety of both the PA and U.S. constitutions turn their backs on the Convention Clause in Article 5 for the sake of ensuring re-election. So why don't legislators in the 19 states that have passed the Convention of States Article 5 Convention Resolution have the same concerns? I think a big part of the reason is that 18 of those states have part-time legislatures. The average annual salary of those state legislators is $25,200. The annual salary of rank-and-file Pennsylvania legislators is $95,400. So it's easy to see why PA state legislators are extremely reluctant to cast risky votes that could result in them losing a very well-paid, full-time job that includes a generous benefits package. With respect to Second Amendment concerns, according to a Giffords Law Center gun control ranking, Every single one of the 19 convention states passed states has a stronger second amendment position than Pennsylvania. Those legislators have no doubts that an article 5 convention can be conducted as the framers intended. The stance many legislators in our general assembly have taken on article 5 is unacceptable to put it mildly. They fear losing their seat much more than they fear losing the republic. Now unfortunately, you know, Davies being part of the Convention of States team is is going to be divisive on the issue, of course, because they're lobbying hard to get this done, and they believe in the cause, and they think this is how we save the republic. As I mentioned, I'm not convinced that's the case. And I think whatever side of the issue we fall on, we don't want to divide the conservative movement over this. It's simply not worth it in my mind. And with that, I'll close on the issue of Convention of States. And if, again, you have anything to add or want to share, please feel free to message me with information. I'd love to hear from you. And also, if there's a particular topic that interests you that you would like more research conducted on, I'd be happy to help you with that as well. And we can have a podcast on it. So thank you again for listening and have a good day.